The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. King Herod heard of the disciples preaching, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, <clears throat> John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee when his daughter Herodias came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. From the summer of 1971 through the autumn of 1972, when I was born, TV newscasts must have seemed unrelenting. Millions of people marching to stop the Vietnam War. Prisoners attacked at the Attica prison, the Watergate scandal, the Pentagon Papers, the Manson and Serpico and Mylai trials, guns in Munich, bombs in DC, British troops in Londonderry, pain and hatred and misery. Where was the harmony at this time? Where was the hope? Hope 
harmony were beamed into living rooms around the world in the form of TV commercials for Coca-Cola. The particular ad that I have in mind in 1971 begins with a blonde woman, eyes clear blue, lip-syncing a strange lyric. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Do you remember this? So many of you are nodding. <laughs> there is an even weirder second line about growing apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves, but this is 1971. So the camera pans across rows of young singers smiling with the rising sun, Spanish and Swedish and Nigerian, Nepalese, dressed in a dashiki, a kimono, a dirndl, and Nehru, a turtleneck. Together they lip sync, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Each holds a green glass bottle in their right hand, one branded in English script, the next in Arabic, another in Thai. I'd like to buy the world a Coke, they sing, and keep it company. The camera pulls up to an aerial view, revealing 200 singers aligned on a green hillside like an open fan, a youth chorus of the world. It's the real thing. They sing in unity. The commercial, first aired on July 8, 1971, had been conceptualized by an executive who had been searching for an effective way to rebrand Coca-Cola. He wanted a big idea, one that would involve the entire United States market for Coke. Everyone, regardless of race and color, class and creed, Imagine, in a season of racial division, imperialist deception, capitalist malaise, the whole world gathered on a hill, sharing a Coke. My middle son, Jacob, 12 years old, who has a particular love for relics from the past, found this piece of Coca-Cola memorabilia at a toy show in Calamus with Doug a few years ago. As you can see, it's a miniature fridge, which in just a moment I'm going to open it for you, and it sings or shouts the Coca-Cola jingle, it's the real thing. And if you open it, uh, it will sing that. Or actually, if you jostle it ever so slightly. So here's how it sounds. Closing it ever so gently, <laughs> Cindy liked it. <laughs> Closing it ever so gently, putting it back so it's not disturbed. Uh, so while at first this toy that they found seemed very nostalgic and endearing, it quickly grew to be the most annoying item in my home <laughs> due to its sensitivity to movement and the boys' delight with it. So they also loved sneaking up behind me, opening the door of this little refrigerator so that this jingle blasts into my ears causing irritated, my word, and amusing, their word, outbursts on my behalf. There is, however, something about this jingle that hooks you, which is why it's a jingle. It's the real thing, Coca-Cola, and that seems to be the case for this soft drink, which has stood the test of time since the late 19th century, 1886 to be exact, 
Other soft drinks have come and gone, but Coke remains the second oldest in the world, second only to Dr. Pepper, which was invented in 1885. Let me be clear, this is not an advertisement or a product endorsement, since I never drink the stuff. Rather, it's a metaphor, an illustration, if you will, of a thing that we all recognize that makes the claim to be the real thing. I'm also willing to wager those of you of a particular age who remember the song that I referred to in this sermon will be humming it for the rest of the day. You are welcome. <laughs> the world appears to have changed little since this first Coca-Cola jingle in 1971. Swap out names and places and we discover the same current sense of unrest disillusionment and agitation. Instead of millions protesting the war in Vietnam, an estimated seven million people moved and marched on January 21st, 2017, protesting the election of President Trump and advocating for legislation and policies regarding human rights, women's rights, immigration reform, health care reform, reproductive rights, the natural environment, LGBTQ rights, racial equality, the freedom of religion, and workers' rights. Instead of Watergate, we have the Russian scandal regarding the 2016 election. Instead of terrorism at the Olympics, we have the pervasive threat of terrorism in our streets, our movie theaters, our airplanes. Instead of the My Lai massacre, we have routine massacres in our schools. Instead of prison riots, we witness the construction of for-profit detention centers, rampant immigration raids on factories and workplaces, the insane ripping apart of children from their parents, and an unconstitutional and inhuman bias against Muslim-populated countries, all in the name of pseudo-patriotism. For the president that attempts to, and in many cases succeeds in legitimizing these things, we are often left wondering where or who the real thing is. What or who is the real thing today? And what postures as the real thing, but is in fact in the end a fake? One can draw an easy parallel between the Herod of long ago mentioned in today's Gospel and our own country's version of Herod in the White House today. Herods of this type come and go throughout history. They are not unique, although they share some similarities. Perhaps the most striking similarity is that their obsession with their own human power and self-image Long ago, Herod became intoxicated by his power and incorrectly concluded that he could silence the word of God if he silenced the mouthpieces of God, in this case, the prophet John. So a short backstory: John the Baptist, cousin to Jesus, calls Herod out in today's gospel because Herod has married his sister-in-law Herodias after she divorces his brother Philip. Herod knows he's done a bad thing. 
He's not above listening to John because deep down in his gut he knows that John is the real thing and that John speaks the truth and that John is a man of God. But then Herod has a birthday party and his daughter Salome dances for him and pleases him, which is open to all sorts of creepy biblical interpretation. And Herod finally tells his daughter she can have whatever she wants, just name it. She conspires with her mother, who has always resented John, returns to her father with her demand, I want John's head on a platter. And Herod, in order to save face and maintain his public image, makes good on his promise. John is beheaded in prison, and his head is presented to mother and daughter. So... Herod would have been better off had he been a man who thought with his gut, which had warned him that John was a godly truth-teller. He would have been better off had he thought with his brain, which warned him against beheading an honored prophet of the people he was attempting to govern. But Herod, like some of our elected leaders today, is not thinking with his guts nor is he thinking with his mind. He is rather thinking with a less honorable appendage that has gotten men in trouble since David first laid eyes on Bathsheba, i.e. the stormy Daniel scandal today. Surely Herod must have thought, well, at least with John gone, there won't be anyone to agitate my guilty conscience. Herod then, also like Herod now, failed to recognize times when self-image is not the most important thing in the world, that it is okay from time to time to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And that does not make you weak. It makes you human. But these leaders do not seek this. They cannot heed the real thing because they are preoccupied by their own power and their own self-image. The thing that Herod, then and now, does not consider is that although you can easily silence the mouthpieces of God by execution or firing, you can never silence the power of God. God's power will be made known despite human efforts to silence it. History shows us this over and over again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who opposed Adolf Hitler in the Second World War, even going so far as to participate in an assassination attempt on the Fuhrer's life and was hung for it. Oscar Romero was a priest in the Catholic Church in El Salvador and fourth archbishop in San Salvador. He spoke out boldly against poverty, social injustice, assassinations, and torture. In 1980, Romero was assassinated during mass by an extreme right-wing death squad. Martin Luther King Jr., American Baptist minister, civil rights activist, assassinated on April 4, 1968, because of his messages of nonviolence and civil disobedience. These were all the real thing, or rather mouthpieces of the real thing, heralds of a gospel message that will not die, even if they do. The thing about God is that God is the real thing. God is that persistent voice, sometimes annoying, that will not die, even if people come and go. God is not hindered by human power. 
as manifested in gross displays of executive orders. God is not encumbered by human flexing of muscle. God is more concerned with divine power as expressed in grace and how we treat one another and how we love this planet, which translates into agencies and people that seek the good for all, especially the vulnerable and weak and marginalized. We know that the Eastern Iowa Community Bond Project, for example, is God-pleasing because their work does not <coughs> seek to prop up a crown, but rather it seeks to free those who are unjustly imprisoned, see Isaiah 51, Psalm 102, people and organizations that seek out the ones Jesus sought out point to the real thing. Our challenge as disciples is not to mistake a fake for the real thing. Fake power is easy to recognize. It seeks to divide. It seeks to destroy. It is insecure. It is self-serving. It obsesses over self-image. True power seeks to heal and harmonize. It lifts up the lowly and lives and those who live on the margins. It cares nothing for self-image. Rather, it empties itself for the sake of other. True power, then, God's power, cannot be silenced even though God's people are. God's power pulses persistently throughout the ages, across the continents. It pulses through you. And it pulses through me since the dawn of time into our own desperate age as we long for real grace to break open upon us. God's power is like that Coca-Cola fridge, which once that door is open, and make no mistake, the door of God's kingdom is open. And once it has been slightly nudged, it does not cease in its refrain of it's the real thing. May we then be brave agents of that power, boldly doing our part, persistently nudging and jostling the current landscape until God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness for all people. Presidents come and go. Churches wax and wane. Prophets are born. And prophets are killed. Kingdoms rise and fall. But God's kingdom, God's power, does not fade, diminish, does not decline, and it will not be silenced. God's word of grace is the real thing and will resonate across the universe when everything else has ceased to be, when God finally absorbs all of creation, all races and colors, classes, creeds, orientations, into God's self in one final and eternal act of love. God's boundless and persistent and endless love for all people then is finally the only real thing. Amen.